Audi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Happy 2021. It sounds a bit like the future, doesn't it? But it isn't the future. It is right now. And this is our first episode of the new year. I'm in Brighton. We're locked down in the UK. We've been locked down for a few days now and we don't know how long it's going to carry on for. Rumours are, uh, are saying maybe um, two months, um, but who knows? And like the rest of the world, we we're living in quite an, a, uh, an unusual time, but um, we've got to do what we've got to do. I'm busy combining homeschooling and work and also making time to get some wonderful guests for the big travel podcast. And it actually feels really nice to be back and to get all that Christmas stuff behind us and look forward to some brighter days ahead. Some things that are keeping me going at the moment are the, the fact that it is getting lighter every day. I think that's, that's probably all I got at the moment. That's how cheery I am. No, uh, there's lots to look forward to, you know, Hopefully things will be changing very soon and hopefully this is the last push. That's what I'm hoping for anyway. So today's guest has a documentary out at the moment on Discovery Plus and he has an incredible story and here it is. It's been called the most treacherous sea in the world but this didn't stop Jamie Douglas Hamilton being part of a team that rode through the Drake Passage from South America to Antarctica breaking nine world records and resulting in the incredible documentary The Impossible Row for Discovery Plus Inspired by his grandfather the first man to fly over Everest Jamie previously rode 5,000 miles from Australia to Africa He's endured 60 foot waves, cuts down to the bone seasickness, land sickness, sleep deprivation and vivid hallucinations, including a rather annoying auditory hallucination of a Nokia ringtone. We have Jamie Douglas Hamilton on The Big Travel Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on The Big Travel Podcast. I've been watching some of The Impossible Row and it just looks, well, like an impossible row really. But tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, so it was uh, the idea for it actually started two years ago. Uh, when Icelandic rower called Fian, who'd actually rode, uh, they broke the wreck on the Atlantic, uh, the Pacific, the Indian Ocean, and in the Arctic, uh, decided to to uh, to row across the Strait Passage, and that's just something that had never been done before. And it was a very it's a very dangerous crossing because the current takes you from west to east, and you've got huge waves, and it's a fully looped current around Antarctica. So once those waves and the fetch build up, there's no landmass to stop it. So they can go on for hundreds, if not thousands of miles. And you get low pressure systems that just come through the Drake Passage and they're compressed into that choke point. And uh, apart from that, it's very cold. You're always wet and you're, <laughs> and you're always cold. 
so it was, it was a tough, tough row. It sounds hideous. What what was the impetus around doing it? What made you, inspired you to want to do it? Well, it was seen as it was seen as the ultimate challenge within rowing. A lot of people in rowing tend to do the Atlantic, and so they'll go from uh, Canaries to Barbados on the Talisker Challenge, uh, which has been done before. This is a world first, so it's going from adventuring into expl- exploration. It's it's very similar to if you've grown up in you know, in UK with stories of Scots, stories of Shackleton. You're kind of going into those uncharted territories. It's something that's a lot of people said was impossible and that's why the name uh, impossible row uh, came up because it was thought to be impossible and that didn't put you off because you know looking at the footage it looks it looks frightening actually were the times that you were scared on the journey yeah there were there were funny enough actually the storms are, are sometimes the best part of it uh <laughs> but it's 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 because you get so close to capsizing and you can also get into some pretty serious speeds. Uh, we were actually went down a 60 foot wave in the Indian Ocean. Uh, we did a 14.4 knots. We caught at the top, the whole boat filled up with water and it was amazing. So we, we were trying to beat that on the, the Drake Passage, but the waves were too steep. And uh, so we couldn't, we couldn't quite do it. So you just tended to get wet a lot. When you're in storms, you don't really have time to get scared in the same way. It's afterwards where when you think, actually, that was, that was pretty dangerous. When you see a steep wave like that coming towards you, you said you don't have time to get scared. What, what are you thinking? You're, you're trying to get parallel to the waves as quickly as you can. So if you see a really big one, you want to get stern coming at Abitetta, you bang on the stern. If it's at an angle, you're in trouble. So as soon as you see it, coming towards you, you're either calling port or starboard and you're putting as hard as you can on that side to, 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 to get the boat round. And do you think there were ever times that you were in danger? I mean, how, how safe were the boats? Yes. I mean, one of the things we did is we put a big dagger board uh, onto the boat and that's a steel dagger board. And that's a bit like a rudder, but it's, it's in the middle of a boat. And we custom made this to make it about a metre and a half long. And that meant when a wave came towards us, not all the waves above, it's actually below too. So it was catching on the dagger board too. And that's one of the reasons we didn't capsize. And you could hear this thing in storms, you know, vibrating. You know, you could really, it was pretty loud with a sheer force of the water. How long did it take you? So it took 12 days. Uh, 12 days sounds like a short amount of time. But 12 days out there felt, it felt like, you know, at least a month. Even time towards the end got distorted as you get tighter. You're rowing in 90-minute sessions. So it's 90 minutes off, 90 minutes on the whole way. So you get very little sleep. And I mean, for two days, I didn't sleep at all because my ankle, uh, you had a brace in the ankle and it went through actually the, 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 the skin and the tissue and going against the bone. So it was pretty it was extremely sore. As I couldn't sleep for two days, two nights. And towards the end, the, the time gets distorted to a point that when you do a 90-minute session, you think it's a three-hour session, and the sessions just would go on and on forever. How did you injure your ankle? So we're wearing sailing boots, and everyone always thinks your hands will, will, will be the worst in rowing. Uh, in fact, it's not. It's your bum that's, that's, that's worse, and your ankles, because your bum, you, you've got the abrasion. You're, you're sitting down, you're, you're, you're taking 24 strokes a minute, and and you get sweat rash inside and it's very sore and it's the same with the ankle and what happens is your your foot 
it's on the Rome strap and it's going up and down on that strap. And you must have boots, the thread is on the, on the inside because they're not expecting anyone to row in them. And so this very thick thread is, is going up and get against your ankle over and over again, 24 strokes a minute, until, until it breaks through the skin, breaks through your sock, and you're still rowing in it. And I thought, we'll just <laughs> soldier on, keep going. And uh, until it was, I knew it was bad because I couldn't feel the rest of my feet, my, 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 my toes. And so when I finally took it off, it was, it was in a bad way. Um, yeah, I thought I was going to be able to survive. I mean, to, keep, to, carry, to carry on or not go to the sport boats. But we, we kept on and I then wore trainers after that. And then my toes froze. So, um, <laughs> so it wasn't, wasn't ideal. Um, was there any point you're thinking like, why did I sign up for this again? Funny enough, actually, um, I was in so much pain after the Indian Ocean. That I, your brain doesn't really rem- remember pain in the same way because pain isn't visual. And so something ends well, you kind of forget about it. But as soon as you're back on the first night and doing the Drake, it's all the smells and all those things and the seasickness. And you think there was a reason why I was so keen to get off the boat last time. And it all came back once you're out there again. And I thought, this is going to be a pretty grueling, grueling few weeks to get through. I've looked at it on the map because I hadn't heard of it um, before. Uh, never been there, probably never go. But it's, uh, it goes all the way around from the southern tip of South America to Antarctica. Um, is it between Cape Horn in Chile and then the South Shetland Islands, I think, Antarctica? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, so it's that, it's that passage of water. And Sir Francis Drake found it originally. And he went through the Strait of Magellan, which is... Um, and that's where it goes the whole way through um, Argentina and Chile. And he went on three, three big ships. Uh, one of them was lost in the hurricane that they had for 52 days. The other one had such bad weather, I had to return home to England. And Sir Francis Drake kept on going within oh, the whole 52 days. They had hurricane force winds until they found Cape Horn and he came back again. And that's why one of the reasons it was so notorious. Thousands of people have, have fallen overboard or ships have gone down uh, at the tip of Cape Horn. You feel the weight of that history of the explorers, you know, the people that crossed the ocean when they didn't really know what was at the, the other side, you know, it just must have been, I mean, it sounds scary enough you doing it with all the technology we have and knowing where you're going, but can you just imagine what it would have been like before all of that in Francis Drake's days? Oh, horrendous. It's uncharted territory, you know, they don't know where they're going and you've got a lot of rocky islands around that area. Uh, what makes it even more dangerous is you've got a continental shelf that comes off South America for about 60 or 70 miles. And you're actually safer in deep water uh, because you get the swell in deep water and very long wavelengths. When you're in shallow water, you get very steep, very high waves. And that's enough to capsize boats. And, and it's enough for boats to actually hit the bottom too. So it's actually very, very dangerous in, in, those, uh, in those waters. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And that's that what was so funny. What was so amazing about going to Antarctica was there's the feeling of, you know, this was the same, the same continent that Scott, Shackleton and all those other explorers found. And I was hugely impacted by Endurance, a book uh, by Anna Shackleton about how he, he went to Elephant Island, the roads for days to Elephant Island. Then they converted one of those lifeboats and with a sail and they sailed to South Georgia. And they got hit by horrendous weather. And some of the stories of the hardships were, were, were just incredible. One person went to 
this cup of cup of water and the cup was so cold it stuck to his lip. We tried to remove it, it actually took off quite a bit of his lip. And so I mean it was it was real, real hardships. I um, read that Ernest uh, Shackleton's biographer called it the most dreaded bit of ocean on the globe. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it is. There's there's, there's nowhere else like the Southern Ocean uh, where you have those right conditions. Uh, you've just got low pressure systems going round continuously round Antarctica in these very, very you know, cold, stormy seas. When it comes to the Drake, it's obviously got Atlantic, Pacific and the Southern Ocean all meeting at that choke point. It's, it's, it's um, yeah, it has all the right conditions to have incredibly um, yeah, stormy conditions very quickly. Uh, the interesting thing about that is it's called the Drake Lake or the Drake Shake. So you can be in periods of absolute calm when you think it's going to miss you. And but that's only be shown high pressure because there's two storms either side of you and one of them's going to hit you. And one once it hits, you know, you can be in the flat calm weather to being in a storm within hours. And that's what makes it so dangerous. Were there exhilarating moments? Was it, there any, you know, there must have been some, I'm, I'm imagining, I'm just thinking about what's it like at night? You know, can you just see thousands of stars? Uh, you can. The, the, the nights were relatively short because... Um, yeah, because it got dark at about 11 o'clock and it tends to get light at about 1.30. And once you get closer to Antarctica, it was more or less a kind of greyish light. It wasn't actually, it was just a little bit darker than day. Uh, but the most exhilarating part was the last two days. Once you get into the South Shetland Islands, you just get these islands that come out of water as if they're Himalayan peaks, cliff faces coming up for hundreds and hundreds of feet. Um, and you, you're followed by penguins, you're followed by whales. It's such an amazing, pristine environment. And we got followed by killer whales that circled us. And then one came towards us, just like something out of Jaws. And about five minutes before, before uh, doing anything, it went down under our boats and kept encircling us. And of course, it wouldn't have seen an ocean rowing boat. So we didn't know if you thought the oars were actually, you know, were, were actually its fins or what was going on. Uh, but yeah, the peng- penguins are amazing. We saw literally hundreds. Where we finished, you had probably a few thousand penguin colony uh, just opposite us. That was, that was by far the best bit. That sounds just incredible. What was it like when you eventually got to your destination? Uh, it, was, it was an adrenaline and an endorphin rush that kind of lasts for weeks, if not month, a month afterwards. The whole way through, you're worried you're not going to make it or something's going to, going to go wrong. The water maker's going to give up or you're going to have a problem with batteries or you're going to have a problem with... You, you, you're worried that something along the line is going to, going to stop. And, and but once you've actually done it and you're on land, then it's a realisation that you've done it. And, and that, that was a really amazing, amazing feeling. It was so much fun. And we landed on Christmas Day. And... Uh, so, yeah, so I remember phoning up uh, home at the time and uh, I remember speaking to my dad and, uh, and he was worried about it. And so afterwards, he just sat down at Christmas lunch and he goes, thank God, <laughs> slouched back in his chair. Um, but yeah, that was that was that, it really it what, was. What was it like? What was it like when you saw land? What did land look like? Like, how did it feel? Oh, it's, well, the first time we saw land, it was quite hard to see because it looked like clouds in the distance. And what it was, was it was a sheer cliff face going up with a lot of snow on it. Uh, and it was called Smith Island. And it was just the most amazing feeling that, 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 that we'd, 
got across the Drake Passage. Because once you're in a Drake, you're in, a, in the danger zone. Once you go into Antarctic waters, it's slightly calmer. You tend to go into high pressure there. Whereas when, when you're in Drake Passage, you get much more low pressure systems coming through. And uh, it was amazing. The interesting thing is I thought we'd see more evidence of global warming. And, and while we're there, Antarctica is still a very cold place. You look at those peaks and it's, it's they're covered in snow, no birds, not albatross could live in them. You know, it's, it's, it's still, you know, very, very cold. My feet and hands didn't recover actually from frost nip uh, for a long time. Uh, it took about two to three months for them to finally come back. So frost nip's a condition when, if you've been wet and cold for a long period of time, uh, for, you know, the, the blood is restricted into your fingers and, and your toes. And then once you get back onto into, you know, dry land, the blood starts going back in and, and it's pretty painful. It's like a, a pins and needles feeling continuously. And uh, going back in the plane was agony because your feet swell during that time. And all your blood goes, 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 goes in. So it was, it was absolutely agony. It must have been um, amazing. I was going to ask, how did you get back? So how, do you, how did you leave Antarctica? Yeah, so it, it, it wasn't, we didn't have a plane. We, once we landed in Antarctica, we were there for a few hours, but a lot of the icebergs were moving very quickly. And we were worried we we're going to get trapped where we landed. Uh, so we had to get onto the supervising vessel. And that then took a long time to get back to Pinto Arenas. It took about five or six days to actually get back, going across the, 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 the ocean we just rode, you know, rode, rode over which is quite strange. So your journey uh, wasn't over at that point? No. During that time on the way back, we narrowly, narrowly escaped a hurricane. If we got hit by that, that hurricane when we were in the Drake Passage, it's, you know, when we were rowing, it might have um, been very different. It might have been, you know, we might have survived, we might not have. What a journey. It's like almost making me tingle, you know, thinking of you uh, arriving there. But you, uh, let's move on to your other uh, journeys, because this was not the, the um, first adventure you've done. Um, I know you've done several, but I read that in 2014, oh, I should say you broke nine Guinness World Records on that trip. But in 2014, you set two Guinness World Records, rowing 5,000 miles from Australia to Africa across the Indian Ocean. Yeah, that was, that was the first one. That was very different because it's a, you're, the Indian Ocean is a very warm uh, ocean. E- even when you're in the middle, you know, it's 2,000 miles from land, you put your, fifth, you know, your hand in and the water's, I wouldn't say it's not warm, but it's, it's kind of mild, cold. You know, it's like a, a lukewarm bath. It's like right, someone running the bath and left it for four hours. You know, so it's not, it's not completely cold, but it's, you know, I was surprised by how, how warm it is. But that, that was a tough row. That was, we got hit by low pressure systems. We got hit by three storms in the first few weeks. And it was, we, we, we went late in the season. So that was right into Australia's winter. And it was, the pain that we had to go through on that was pr- pretty grueling. It was just so much further. I mean, I, I lost two stone doing the Drake Passage. Uh, I lost three stone doing Indian Ocean. But it did take two months my goodness did you feed yourself you're not not you know a, a large person and you know you're not fat <laughs> um, yeah. do, you have, do you have to feed yourself up knowing that you're going to lose all that weight yeah but the, the problem is if you're i mean my, my I'm, I'm 12 and a half stone normally and the more training you do the more weights you do the faster your metabolism 
So you can eat a lot, but you just you can only put the weight on a muscle. You can't put it on fat. And the problem is you need you need fat because you need to be able to burn that you know for your fat reserves. And if you have bad seasickness when you're out there, it's very hard to even hold down water in the first two to three days. So you can't eat you know, all your fat reserves are kind of going in those first few days, and uh, and that and that made it really difficult. And actually, you also um, on that trip and talking of the water, you you developed a, well, you discovered something really fascinating about water that led to you sort of starting a uh, an enterprise in relation to that. Tell us about that. Yeah, so what we found is after we were drinking desalinated water, so it's water from the sea that goes through a membrane and it comes out pure. And we were drinking nine to 13 litres of water every day. And the problem with, with that is it flushes out the electrolytes from your system. And so we were getting pretty unbalanced in the water. Uh, you, you, you know, we were passing out some, uh, on the oars at night with very little power in the water. And it's all changed when one member mixed his fresh water with seawater. And we were told never to do this, but it's probably the most powerful sports drink we ever had. And he encouraged us all to try it, and we did. And every second bottle, we had a quart of seawater. And that's one of the biggest reasons why we broke speed records in that ocean, was because of how we hydrated. And I realised how important hydration is to performance. 70% of your body is made out of water, 85% of your brain, 92% of your blood is made out of water. And so I researched it all over the world to find ionised alkaline water in Japan. And this was approved by the Ministry of Health for people with gastronomical problems. And so people have Crohn's, IBS, etc. And they use this as an anti-inflammatory, but it also stops the build-up pepsin, which causes reflux and hydrates faster. And it's now the fastest-growing beverage category in the world. It's very big in the USA, and we were the first to do it in Europe. And so we're, we're currently the, yeah, the market leaders. We're about 8,000 retailers, and it's called Active Water. That's incredible. But um, in, the, in the lead up to that, I mean, that's, that sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? We've been taught not to drink the, the seawater. So I think that's a, a, a brilliant discovery. But in the lead up to that, you were having vivid hallucinations. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, w- 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 one of the hallucinations was uh, when you, you tend to hear um, your name being called out quite a bit. You tend to hear a Nokia ringtone or dogs barking. But uh, one of the visual hallucinations was actually, and apparently you get it when your sodium levels are very, very low. And uh, Fian was in front of me rowing and I was looking at him and we were actually in a storm at the time. And I was imagining he was in the laboratory. I even saw him with my eyes open, walking up and down a stepladder, changing a light bulb. And so I was screaming, Fian, Fian, why are you changing a light bulb? <laughs> he turned around and he said, what are you talking about? And suddenly I realised we're in this highland game in the middle of the Indian Ocean. <laughs> so, oh my goodness, that's really worrying. Are you not worried that you're going to like hallucinate something, um, you know, that will cause you to sort of do something stupid, like jump overboard or I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, there were the stories in the war when, when people got, uh, were shipwrecked in, in the Pacific. They got so delirious. I remember one story about when there was a young man in the open sea, thinking he could see his mother on a pier. And of course, he was just hallucinating. I mean, one of the other funny stories was uh, Fian, then a few days later, stood up on the oars and tried to imagine a huge hand had come through the water. And even when you're hallucinating, most people will be scared. <laughs> He's very mystical. He decides to try and shake this big hand. He's leaning over, almost goes overboard. <laughs> and, 
So, and it does worry you. You kind of, you, kind of, you, you worry if you're ever going to recover from it. Is it funny? Uh, you, I mean, you're you know, laughing now, it, but is it funny? Can you see the funny side at the time? Or are you just thinking, oh my God, mate, like get back in the boat? Yeah, there are, but then, but then you don't know what's real, real and what's not. So there's times when I was purposely quiet because I didn't know if I had conversations with people or if they'd just been made up in my head. And so it was... <laughs> But uh, but seawater definitely, without doubt, definitely helps. Are it's you, interesting. Uh, the oh, God, sorry. Uh, the, the science behind it. Seawater is three and a half percent salt. Your kidneys can break down two percent salt in solution, but not three and a half. So if you dilute it down to about one percent, your your body can actually very safely break it down. Um, I was just I was just thinking, still thinking about the hallucinations, and I'm thinking like. I've heard uh, when people do acid um, is that sometimes you can get um, suggestive to other people's hallucinations. Do, does that happen or you're all having in your own little like tripped out world? Yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty much so. But it's, it's you don't get them all the time. They go in waves, you know, and the biggest one is just constantly hearing your name being called out. So it's so real in your head. You think they are actually playing a joke on you and, you know, when they're actually not. The Nokia ringtone is hilarious as well. Why not like an iPhone one or something? I suppose it's just, it's, you know, it's a memorable one, isn't it? Nobody has it anymore and uh, it, it does stay with you. Yeah, it's a bit like torture, You're trying to get that out of your head. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, it's, it's uh, when you do a row that degree, I mean, on that row, it was beautiful. Night, night was only a bit darker than day. And when the moon used to come up, it was completely orange when it came over the, over the sunrise uh, and, you know, uh, uh, yeah, over the horizon. And then, then once you actually saw the stars, they, they looked as if they were only two miles above you. You could see, I mean, they were so bright. It was just, if you got still nights and you're looking at the stars, there was moments you wish would never end. Uh, I've never seen stars like that anywhere, any day, anywhere else in the world, actually. I can imagine. I can. I can. I, I can't imagine. I'd love to imagine. It sounds like a dream. It sounds like a film. Um, and so, where did you go from and to on that journey? Like, what what town did you did you rock up at and say, "Hey, we've, we've just rode five thousand miles." We set off from Geraldton, and we were actually heading for Durban, South Africa. And the storms hit took us so far north. We were then looking at ending in Kenya, and but there, there was issues at that time with piracy. And there was some pretty, pretty bad stories during that time and what Al-Shabaab were doing um, as well. And so we finished in Seychelles. And it's quite funny, but once you've been sea for so long, once you actually get onto land, you can't stand up properly, especially trying to walk in a line, you know, and, and you get land sickness. And so after we'd landed and, you know, we'd, we'd met family and friends, uh, we went to a hotel uh, where, where they'd, they'd put to a restaurant. restaurant. And as we were walking through, we kept on banging to one table and then to another. She can't walk in. And they said, where have you come from? And we said, Australia. And there's one of the guys said, you seen these guys? They're so drunk. They think they've just come from Australia. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, <laughs> God, yeah. it must have been, must have been abs- an absolute buzz. Uh, which, if you had to choose your favourite, I know which would be my favourite, um, but uh, which, which was your favourite of those two journeys? Uh, the, the last two days of Drake Passage were memories I'll never forget for the rest of my life. 
it was just unbelievable beauty, unbelievable colors of whiteness, you know, the, the, the blues of the icebergs, the penguins, the whales. So it's amazing in such a cold environment to have so much wildlife. You know, it was, it was just absolutely incredible. Uh, and it's the scale of Antarctica. It's, it's these huge mountains, this enormous landmass. Everywhere you look, it's just this, such an unnatural world and, and, and dramatic kind of peaks. But yeah, I, I, the last two days on Antarctica were, were just incredible. How did you get into this? Where did your adventuring start? And what other uh, big journeys or, or smaller journeys have you done before these? So I used to be a runner. I used to be a sprinter. And then I got into to long distance running. From that, I got into co- coastal rowing. And uh, my interest I suppose started when I was a boy, when my grandfather was the first man to fly for Mount Everest. I was getting around to that, and I'm really uh, excited about asking yeah. about that. So let's let's talk about him now then. So your your grandfather was the first man to fly over Everest, amongst uh, other things, actually. He's a very, very interesting character. Uh, tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, so he was he a was huge inspiration. He used to be a champion boxer. Um, he was middleweight boxing champion for Scotland during that time. And... Uh, and then he'd done a huge amount of um, aerial missions when he was with the RAF. And then he took on, in 1933, they they'd had flown over Everest and they thought it was impossible. And he actually put an extra propeller on. And the issue was, was with the oxygen. So if you ran out of oxygen, you had 30 seconds of survival. And they were on course to, take, to, to clearing the peak. And they got taken down by downdrafts, very violent downdrafts, because the air's so thin there by thousands of feet in seconds. So almost to the point you're, you're crashing. And so they went from looking like they're going to clear it quite easily to looking like they're going to crash straight into it unless they, unless they changed course. But they didn't, and they kept on pulling and pulling. But this is before you have hydraulic pressure in the planes. And so it's like pulling a 300, 300k deadlift. Um, and so they kept on pulling and pulling. And they only cleared it by about, you know, it was about 40 to 60 feet. It wasn't much. Wow. And what um, the footage they used from that is what Hillary, so Edmund Hillary, used to then summit Mount Everest on a new route twenty years later. And uh, he used the, to, 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 to the footage from that to navigate a new route up. He sounds and, uh, uh, what an amazing. He sounds an amazing character. So he was. You haven't mentioned his name. He was Sir Douglas Douglas Hamilton, which I'm not going to point out the unimaginative um, use of Douglas twice. Um, he was the 14th Duke of Hamilton and the 11th Duke of Brandon, and uh, he died in in March 1973. So I'm guessing you never knew him. No, it was just sad actually. Um, and yeah, he got. Uh, he was allergic to adrenaline, and he got a, an adrenaline shot when he was in hospital. And it was a shame. He's a very fit person, and and it's it's yeah, it it, it killed him. But um, it's just I mean, he would have lived another twenty or thirty years, you know, further if he hadn't. But um, but yeah, no, he did. He did great things. And him and his four three brothers were all squadron commanders in in in, in the war. But the funniest is when they came back from the Everest flights. Um, uh, because it's so cold, obviously, when, when you're going to Everest. But when they came back to, when they started in India, it was so hot. So the first thing we want to do was get out and s- swim in this pool. And it's like a little swamp pool. And they said, no, don't, don't because you've got crocodiles in there. And they've been coming up. And they said, crocodiles, no crocodiles. <laughs> We're going swimming. And they swam in, went in this pool that I'd have had reports of man-eating crocodiles. And, but 
<laughs> it seemed irrelevant to flying over Everest. He was the man who Rudolf Hess flew to Scotland to try and negotiate with in May 1941 um, during the well, in the middle of the war. So, I mean, that's really quite uh, quite quite a, a fascinating fact. It's something about he parachuted in uninvited or something like that. Hess did. What yeah, so, so Hess was a prisoner of his own propaganda, and they thought that within the inner circle, Third Reich, they thought they were enormously powerful. This was he was getting sidelined from the Nazi Party. And this was six weeks before Operation Barbarossa, so before they attacked Germany. Grandad had never actually met Rudolf Hess before, but he went to the 1936 Olympic Games and uh, he met up with uh, Rudolf Hess's adjutant. Um, he was called Hausover. And, and he actually wrote a letter to us because he hated the Nazis because he was, he got, he was, a, um, he was a Jewish origin. And he wrote Grandad a letter saying war is going to break out with Poland on this date, and they gave him these letters, which were then at that time, Grandad went down to saw Churchill, and it's before his prime minister, and showed him these, and it was then shown to MI6. And so they still had this line between Hausover and Grandad that was still going. And then Hess wanted to meet up, and he didn't realize Hausover said, let's meet up in Portugal, but Hess was actually going to be there. And then this was middle, Hitler didn't even know about this. None of the other uh, um, uh, officials in the party knew about it. But he knew that a war of Russia was going to end badly. And the only way it could end well is if, he took, if, if there was peace of Britain. He couldn't fight, fight a war on two fronts. And so he came up with a plan that he didn't even get any permission for. And he thought he could fly over to Scotland, jump out of a parachute, land in Dungable Castle, where Grandad wasn't even there. He was stationed commander of 602 Squadron in Edinburgh Airport, which is Turnhouse. And then come up for a cup of tea and discuss peace plans <laughs> with someone he's never met. And uh, what ended up happening is recently, for the first time, he jumped out of his parachute. they never done before. He broke his ankle in a fall. He got pitchforked by a local farmer uh, near Hamilton. And he got put into a military hospital. And he said he would speak to no one uh, apart from, apart from uh, Grandad. So he then went to see him in the middle of the night couldn't believe that he was spouting these peace plans uh, and, and he just couldn't believe it. So he flew immediately down to London and this is the same night that, that Hitler ordered, ordered the bombing of Westminster. And so you either had the Great Hall being saved or the debating chamber being saved and they ended up saving the Great Hall. Um, and so it's all Churchill what had happened. Churchill was so bemused. Uh, in the middle of a war, about three o'clock, he said, uh, you're telling me Rudolf Hess is now in a hospital in Glasgow. He said, Hess or no Hess, it's not fucking us watching Mark Brothers. In the middle of this, uh, the Blitz, they watched this film in the bunker and for about half an hour, and then he passed out and he wakes up and he goes through the details. He then sees the king the next day, reports the details to him. Everyone in the West couldn't believe it. They thought it was a conspiracy between the aristocrat and Germany. It wasn't. It was because Hess was so, it was pretty stupid uh, to thinking that Britain wanted to have a peace agreement when it had gone too far. In a year earlier, it might, it might have happened. But they, they'd already blitzed London. They'd been bombing London for, for you know, flattened the East End by this stage. Mm. So, yeah, it was a very strange story in the middle of the Second World War. Middle, um, just, you know what? I haven't been aware of that story before. And I don't know why, because I, I read a lot about the uh, Second World War. And um 
and whether I've been aware of it and it's passed me by, I don't know, but I can see how you'd find your grandfather as a as an inspiration. I'm running out of time to speak to you, but um, what's what's next? Have you got any more adventures planned? Yes, we do, we do, but I can't. <laughs> I can't, I can't reveal. All I can say is it could be 12 months and it could be very cold. But that's all I can say. So what are you going to do in that year? Do you, are you going to be training or are you going to be drinking cocktails and, uh, you know, and sitting by the fire? <laughs> the, the, the big thing is just to maintain that level of fitness, you know. So even if you train twice a week, you know, get to good sessions twice a week and to keep that momentum going. Uh, and then once you go into the final kind of four months, you know, or five months, start, start building it up to train five times a week. And, and then you do all your sleep, sleep deprivation training. So, for example, that's where you have, um, you set your alarm at different times of night. One time might be four o'clock. One time might be three o'clock. You have a rowing machine by your room. As soon as it goes off, you, within 10 seconds, you've got to be out, trainers on, on the rowing machine, row for one hour. And as soon as it finishes, don't go to the loo, don't have a shower. You're sweating. You get back into your bed as you're sweating and you go to sleep. And then that seven, is, you're alive. Wake up. That is crazy. <laughs> that is absolutely crazy. Good luck with that. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to ask you my last question. Um, my last question is always about music because I often think that music and travel go hand in hand. And if you had to pick one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel, what is that song? And describe the, uh, the moment. Oh, it's, there's a band in Scotland called Nightworks, and it's Gaelic music. And it's the most beautiful Gaelic music. I don't actually know what the name of the song is, because it's in, it's in Gaelic, but it's, 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 all of their album is, is amazing. Very, very inspirational music. It almost feels like it's from a time gone by. But yeah, I would highly, highly recommend anyone to have a look at Nightworks. Nightworks. I don't know Nightworks. So were you listening to music when you were on any of your journeys? Did music feature? <laughs> my, my earphones broke on the very first night uh, on Indian Ocean. And on the last one, I didn't even take anything. Yeah, night we'd, we'd have to, you know, sing songs between ourselves. And it was a lot of fun, actually, uh, at, at times when you're in between storms. And it was Sky Boat Song, Loch Lomond, Flower of Scotland, the good old Scottish ones. We go, Lassie go, um, and then it was all the pop ones as well. So it was, it was very good. But now I'm not going to sing one today. Thank you so much, Jamie, and to you for listening. It's really good to be back, and I hope you all have a very positive year and that we're all travelling and doing the things we love and indeed able to see the people we love very soon. 